EW's Game of Thrones podcast, Like Jon Snow, has risen from the dead. We are back with four episodes over the next four weeks to talk about a new book in the world of Westeros. Sorry, it's not The Winds of Winter. It's my book, Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, the first ever inside story of making Game of Thrones, told from start to finish. And it was just published today, October 6th, by Random House Books. And there's all sorts of new revelations in there about the show, and we're going to get into some of them over the next four weeks, including uh, hearing some clips from the cast and the writers from their interviews uh, for the book, too. So I'm EW Editor-at-Large, James Hibbard, by the way, if this is your first episode of the podcast, welcome. And uh, the first person I gave a copy of the book to after George R.R. Martin was my podcast partner, EW critic Darren Franich. And I've been kind of dying to know what he thinks and shamelessly hitting him up on Slack every five minutes going, did you get to that part yet? Did you get to that part yet? So, Darren, uh, read any good books lately? Oh, James, I've read a wonderful book, a wonderful book that I've very much enjoyed. And can I just say, I've always thought of myself as someone who should get something after George R.R. Martin. So thank you for confirming my place in the overall uh, overall itinerary of existence. Um, James, I've been excited about this book for a very long time. Um, you know... I suspect someone would say, you're probably a little biased towards liking it. You've literally been talking to this guy about this show for a significant portion of your professional life. But truthfully, the bias might have gone in both directions because I assumed like, hey, like I've talked to James about Game of Thrones on a podcast, off a podcast, internally, externally for years and years now. I kind of thought I probably even know all this stuff he didn't tell the public. Like, I'm, I'm someone who knows the inside stories here. Even so, um, so many great new revelations about the making of Game of Thrones from the cast, from the people who, who worked on it, from George R. Martin himself. Um, it's such a delightful book to read as somebody who watched the show, and indeed the entire world watched the show, so I hope that everybody does check it out. Um, I do have to ask, though, James, this time last year, we were finishing up uh, our coverage of the show's final season, I somewhat got the sense that you might not want to continue writing about <laughs> Game of Thrones after doing so for an entire decade. Um, how did Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon come about initially? Yeah, it's uh, you got that sense probably because I was telling that to you a lot. Um, it's funny because after Thrones ended, I'd written so many Thrones stories and probably like, you know, maybe over a hundred about the final season alone. I remember at one point thinking, I don't ever want to type the words Game of Thrones again for like a year. <laughs> and then an agent cold called man just reached out and pitched the idea for this book. And I was like, oh no, that's a good idea. Because I was really drawn to the idea because I've covered the show for over a decade, but it's all been so piecemeal. It's been writing about a performance or doing a season preview or doing a breakdown of a scene or a recap. And nobody had ever told the story of making Thrones from beginning to end with direct sources from inside the show. So I, I like the idea of creating something that felt complete and permanent that that's that drew upon, you know, over a decade of work. And, um, and I was also excited because there's there's a lot of things about Thrones that I had never really gotten into and explored before between uh, like the early meetings between George and the showrunners and with HBO to the failed first pilot to staging the first battle. And also circling back on things that I knew the answers to off the record, but the producers had, you know, never gone on record before that were sensitive, uh, like why Lady Stoneheart never showed up or their feelings about the Dorn episodes. And 
also revisiting some of the controversies like Sansa's wedding night and the final season blowback. And plus, of course, just diving deeply into many of the greatest moments in the show. So once I got started, there ended up being so much to talk about. Uh, the vast majority of the book is, is entirely new content. And, you know, the publisher had to like pry it out of my hands in, in August because I, I just would have kept going for, for another six months, which probably wouldn't have necessarily made a better book. But, uh, but there, was, it, it was, there was a surprising amount to do. Well, and James, you know, uh, I, I remember telling you when we were finishing up uh, our podcast about the final season of Game of Thrones um, that I really felt like your coverage of the show was something that will be taught in journalism schools. The way that you covered the show in depth, the way that you wrote a hundred posts, sometimes about a single episode, much less about a whole season, um, always kind of giving us new information about what went into the making of the show. Um, what I value so much about this book is as you're kind of saying, it is that feeling of, okay, we were kind of down in the trenches as you were covering the show as it was coming out. Now we're really getting this sort of history book version of this that gives us, to me, certainly as someone who thought I knew a lot about what went into the show, as someone who's loved the George R. R. Martin books for you know pretty much my entire adult life, I still felt like I was getting so much more clarity and, and insight into the overall complexity of the making of the show. Um, I'm intrigued to know, James, um, you know, you had spoken to pretty much all of these people previously and, you know, worked with, um, you know, worked with them in your coverage of, of the show while it was on. Uh, what was HBO's involvement like in the making of Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon? Like, what's that like when you're covering the show after it's already kind of aired and, and finished? Yeah, yeah. My conversation with them early on was that I wanted to write a book about their biggest hit ever, and I wanted the book to be editorially independent, and I also want permission to use their photos and their Game of Thrones trademark. So it, it was a really big ask. And I'm frankly amazed that they agreed. You know, there was definitely you know, some conversations. So while it, it's, it's, like, it's, it's a weird hybrid because it's an official HBO book, but I wasn't paid anything by HBO. In fact, I had to pay them quite a bit for use of their photos like any other licensed product would. And the manuscript is untouched and uncensored. And, and really, that's the only way journalistically I could ever do it anyway. You know, I knew I was going to be getting into some sensitive territory and I wasn't going to spend a year working on my first book only to have somebody, you know, an executive with a red pen start crossing stuff off, you know. So, you know, it, and it, when you read the book, it's pretty obvious from the very start that people are being forthcoming and not always in agreement on things. Uh, it's definitely not like a coffee table book. Uh, the style of Game of Thrones is something that's always been pretty blunt and no no bullshit and R-rated. And that's kind of what I want the style of the book to be, too. Yeah, you know, James, it, it strikes me that, you know, you're talking about this concept of, of creating the, the, the uncensored version of the story, which, of course, is journalistically kind of what we have to do. Um, it strikes me that that is not that different from it, what in the early stages of your book we find was a key creative instinct, both for George R. R. Martin when he was working on A Song of Ice and Fire, the books that created the foundation for Game of Thrones, and indeed what the showrunners kind of wanted to do with those books. Um, one of the things I love so much about the early chapters of your book, James, is that it really brings me back to just how radically different the TV landscape was before Game of Thrones. I mean, this seems obvious to say we're very much living in the post-Thrones world of television where so many things that we kind of take for granted from, you know, 
fantasy as a mainstream topic for television um, to huge budgets to you know these you know standalone episodes with big battles that we we would we would previously associate with the big screen that's all stuff that Thrones created um, but you have some great conversations with George R. R. Martin which gets back to the fact that he was a frustrated TV writer at right. one point and how that kind of instinct led to his creation of Westeros um, you know some of this is material that we've talked about before but was there stuff that kind of surprised you about um, what you discovered about the, the the overall development process of Game of Thrones? Yeah, I, I mean, especially the early stuff was cons- was consistently surprising. And uh, you know, just going into that first meeting, the first meeting you know at a restaurant in L.A. between George R. R. Martin and showrunners uh, David Benioff and Dan Weiss, you know, it, it, that meeting had been written about a few times out there. But I really wanted the blow by blow. I, I wanted not just what was said, but also what each side was thinking during the meeting. Uh, you know, because this is a meeting that would change the course of television history. You know, George had, and George had turned down other opportunities to, to adapt the books. So how was he convinced? And Dan and David were talented writers, but they had zero TV experience. So what were they thinking? You know, and and to your point about how shows like this just weren't done. You know, there's oh, there's been a lot of talk, or, or you know, recently about well, you know, Dan and David didn't. Uh, you know, had had no TV experience yet. They were given this big show. Well, it wasn't a big show you know, during that first meeting, it wasn't anything. It, it was this extremely long shot idea. And if they had had TV experience, I don't think that they would have tried to do this. They didn't know what they were getting into when, you know, I mean, they, they had some idea, but I, I they didn't know the extent to which how hard of a task that they were trying to do. And, you know, which is one reason why I think, you know, which we'll talk about a bit, you know, the, you know, the that the first pilot failed and they realized that they had to like, you know, you know, double down times 10 to really make this work. Um, so yeah, in, in some ways their, their lack of experience was what was needed in order for, 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 for someone at that time when TV shows like this just weren't done to pull us off. You do mention uh, listeners of the podcast would be happy to hear that the HBO series Rome gets a couple of, of shout outs um, as just kind of the example of here was a huge, massive, ancient times epic that the network had worked on uh, that you and I, James, know is pretty great, but that most audiences did not discover at the time and that had cost a significant amount of money. So it's just, it's so great to kind of reset us back to that time, this idea that not only was a show like this not usual, but for the network, the, the one example you could kind of point to, there were no dragons in Rome, but it was kind of the, the, the go-to example of that kind of storytelling. Yeah. Shields and sandals. Yes, ex- exactly. Yeah. As, a, as a swords and sandals and shields and sex kind of example of like premium cable television. So again, you think about the network is coming off of that. You have these two TV non-producers talking to Martin, who, as you know, your, your book makes clear, he had more of a uh, TV career than they had at that point, essentially. Um, you know, it, it definitely is kind of an interesting conversation. Uh, and you spoke to uh, uh, to showrunner Dan Weiss about it. He had some really interesting things to say about that first meeting. Yeah, yeah. And we have a clip here that's really good of Dan talking about basically how George tried to talk them out of adapting A Song of Ice and Fire uh, during that first meeting, which we'll go ahead and play now. A certain element of like, you know, how when you're converting to Judaism, the rabbi's job is not to convince you to convert, but to can talk you out of it. There yeah. was a, there was a definite <laughs> element of that in it where he was explaining to us 
the, you know, the reason he left television to go do himself mm -hmm. full time to writing was to be able to do things you couldn't produce. Did he tell us the was that stone story? That <laughs> it may have been the place might. where he told us the he was he worked on the Twilight Zone, and he said it, that was for him just a moment where he said I. My imagination is bigger than the Knights or Stonehenge. He goes, I want the Knights and Stonehenge and another 20 Stonehenge and another million Knights. Yeah. And so he, he just, it, it, he wrote this book yeah. as a place to put the entirety of his uh, imaginative mm -hmm. capacity. And, and, and he wrote it almost intentionally to be unfilmable. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. We're back with EW's Game of Thrones Weekly. One of the most complicated things in covering how a TV show gets made, James, is that development process because to the outside viewer, it seems like not much is happening. You know, uh, in Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, you sort of cover what turns out to be years of the development process of Thrones. Um, but I do think that for a lot of people who love the show, the, the story really kind of ramps up when you get to the actual casting phase for the original pilot of Game of Thrones, the, the, the casting for the show. Um, you know, one of the other kind of great return to an earlier time joys of, 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 of uh, reading your book is getting to talk to all these actors who, you know, we saw certainly the child actors, we saw them age into actual adults over the course of the show. A lot of the actors became, you know, true TV icons in the following decade. Um, this is kind of a great return to a moment when they were all just one among what seems like literally millions of actors from the United Kingdom and, and points further um, trying to get a role on the show. Um, it's kind of a unique situation given just how huge the ensemble was when the show started. Um, and uh, I believe uh, you, you kind of have the actor Liam Cunningham point out the supreme strangeness of here you have a show that is meant to run for years and years and although viewers might not have realized it at the time, you're hanging so much of that on actors who might be, you know, nine, ten, or, you know, kind of just out of their teen years when they start on the show, which is pretty remarkable. Um, what was it kind of like speaking to a lot of these now big name actors about when they were, you know, some of them just coming out of school, some of them still very much in school when they were in the, in the casting process? Yeah, it, one thing common thread through all of them is, is, at the time, it was just such a random, often annoying thing that they had to do in their day, you know, <laughs> uh, like like Maisie Williams, you know, had a had a class trip to I think it was a pig farm that then she was really excited to go to the pig farm and she couldn't go to the pig farm because she had to go, go, to, go to the audition. You know, so there was just a sense of of random fortuitousness about it, you know, to to some degree. Uh, that all these people that that we're that are, you know have become so iconic and now have have such great careers uh, were just you know just in the right place at 
the right time. But, you know, from the position of the people doing the casting, it was insanely difficult and stressful experience because just finding one child actor who knows what they're doing is extremely difficult to find, you know, you know, a, a, this large number of child actors and ones that can also serve as part of a family and kind of look and feel like part of a, part of a group that grew up together was extraordinarily challenging. And the biggest challenge was actually finding Aria and uh, they, you know, looked at so many Arias and uh, you know, back then, you know, George uh, was very much part of the casting process. He was looking at these, these videos of, of auditions like all day long, like dozens and dozens of auditions and giving like detailed notes about who he thought would work. So we actually have George talking about uh, the moment they found Aria. And uh, this conversation was actually recorded in a uh, restaurant in Santa Fe. So uh, the audio on it is not that great because there's a lot of background noise. In fact, a lot of the audio clips, uh, you know, they weren't recorded in a studio. I, I, I was trying to get people, you know, wherever I, I could get them, you know, you know, by phone, by Skype, in person, in a bar, wherever. Uh, so, uh, you, you know, this is one of them where it's a little challenging to hear, but, uh, but George's story still comes through. Like three quarters of the girls we saw were were just reciting lines. There was nothing going on there. They, you know, and that that's a big thing for a ten-year-old to to memorize all those lines. I don't do it, but there was no acting. It was just line reciting. And then the other quarter were obviously kids who had had some acting classes or something, and some acting coach had told them, you have to emote. So they were emoting all over the place. I mean, every one of them was massively right. overacting and grimacing and rolling their eyes and um, looking at this and saying, we're doomed. We're doomed. We're never going to find a girl who can play Arya. And then one day, Maisie Williams was there, and it's, holy hell, there she is. There she is. Doesn't physically, her facial features weren't at all like what I described, but she was perfect, just the right balance. She was, she was Arya. She was alive. She was, you know, there was emotion and there was personality that just came right out of the screen to you. Can I be Lord of a Hold Fast? <laughs> you will marry a High Lord and rule this castle, and your sons. She'll be knights and princes and lords. Mm-hmm. No. That's not me. So there's a lot of different anecdotes about uh, casting uh, different uh, characters. And then we kind of move on to the first pilot, which is uh, this is the infamous first pilot that you that you never saw. Uh, the, the first one that was shot that cost $10 million and was basically almost entirely reshot and uh and you know it really goes to show how difficult uh this type of thing is to pull off i mean most people just have no idea that millions billions of decisions that go into a show where just one wrong note can kind of mess it all up or at the very least make it feel somehow off as there there are so many things that need to go right to pull something off and um and so we have uh, a couple of clips from this, actually. We have uh, first, I think we have like Nikolai sort of, you know, setting the scene in terms of candidly giving a sense of uh, that things were not quite right in Westeros. And I just remember 
finding the whole thing ridiculous. I mean, because it is the absurdity of what we were trying to do this parallel universe with with these very noble men, and, and it's a very fine balance between being serious and and you you, you you believe it, and then it just becomes the cosplayers. And the producers would be one of the first to to say that that you know they didn't really know what they were doing at the time. But then again, neither did anybody else because a show this big had never been done before. And they're also mainly in uh, Northern Ireland where they're using a lot of local crew that had some good experience and would prove to be you know tremendously resilient and hardworking over the years and really essential to pulling off the show. But you know they certainly had never done a production of this size either. So it was kind of a learning curve for everybody involved to try and figure out what worked and you know, didn't work. I mean, you know, you know, even down to like such little things like, you know, what is Joffrey's haircut? You know, they originally had him in a kind of more King Arthur era, you know, you know, medieval kind of kind of cut, like bowl cut thing. And, uh, you know, they eventually changed it to something a little more, more modern to, to give him a little bit more of a sort of, sort of contemporary kind of spiteful look. You know, that is one among many tiny little details in terms of the production of the original pilot and what they ultimately did with the final pilot um, that I just really soaked in. Um, you know, it's interesting. It kind of takes you back to what George R. R. Martin was saying about, you know, in casting Arya, like, this is not the person I pictured at all. And yet she she is exactly what we're looking for. Um, you know, especially as the show went on and there would be all these conversations about like what was and wasn't adapted. And some of us were upset about certain uh, shirt tail Martell cousins who were not covered as much as some of us think that they should have been. Um, it really kind of brought me back to how just in creating this world, as you were saying, James, there had to be all these little decisions that even, you know, in terms of whatever authenticity you're creating for this world, maybe that kind of, you know, King Arthur page boy cut would have made more sense. But, you know, Joffrey just kind of comes to life when you give him that kind of slightly more modern evil kid in the like private high school kind of a look. Um, you know, there's so much about that failed pilot that again, as someone who thought I knew a little bit about what went into the making of it and, and why, at least, you know, from the exterior, uh, I, I'd always heard that it had not worked. Um, even little things about the world. Uh, we have a great clip here of the actor Mark Addy, who of course played uh, King Robert Baratheon, uh, talking about how just one kind of subtle bit of reaction to his presence immediately altered the feeling of the show and the feeling of how um, the people within the show were going to be coming across to us. Uh, let's listen to the clip. You can't play being the king. You can't display, look at how powerful I am, really. People have to give you that through their subservience to you. That has to be afforded you by others. So, for example, the whole, you know, that arrival of Winterfell, the fact that the whole courtyard kneels automatically invests a kind of authority in you. In general, James, one of the things I love so much about the, the kind of coverage that you provide of the failed pilot is it really is kind of this window into an alternate universe in so many ways. And it does bring home to me how, as we were saying earlier, fantasy on television at that time was a gamble. Very expensive fantasy was a gamble. Very expensive 
fantasy with mature content was a gamble. Um, and it just seems to me as if, you know, you have this thing happen where that gamble does not pay off really <laughs> the, the, the first time. Um, but, uh, you know, the fact that it did ultimately get made, it always feels very tense to me, even knowing the show that kind of came about afterwards. Um, you were kind of saying that this was not something you've been able to cover in depth previously before. Um, what was it like just kind of sifting through that incredible lock turn moment of the, the pilot not being good to HBO saying, okay, we will double down on this investment. <laughs> yeah. I think Dan Weiss, uh, you know, you know, did a lot of really heartfelt articulation of sort of what they were going through at, at that time. Uh, you know, I love the quote about how, you know, when they played the pilot for friends that people would go, it's good. And, you know, that, that, that they knew when their voice went up on the word good, that that was bad. And, and as he, as he put it, you know, you know, how high their voice register went beyond their normal voice on the word good was a measure of, of how fucked you were. And, uh, and, and that our good w was in dog whistle territory. So everyone was like going, it's good, you know? So, and, and, and so now whenever I do anything and I look for feedback on, from somebody and they go, it's good. I'm like, uh Oh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's so not good. And, you know, and then just talking about, you know, how extraordinarily painful it was after all those years of developing this and trying to get this and to find out that they might have screwed it all up. And it really informed how they approached the show after that. The show would not have been nearly as good without the failed pilot because the failed pilot really kicked everybody in the ass and just and just made them work so much harder after that. And, you know, it, uh, you know, this isn't a quote in the book, but, but David Benioff once told me on, I, on, I think on, I was on set for season two that the show redefines what you think of as work because it becomes everything in your life. And that's the only way to do it. That's the only possible way uh, to get it done. Thinking about the original pilot and what we now kind of learn about it in your book and how that relates to the show that ultimately followed it, I, I did almost wonder, is that sometimes the best way to make a show is to like deeply invest yourself in the production of a pilot episode, then look at it and say, we need to change everything, or, or rather, we need to change lots and lots of things uh, um, that are attached to this. Same thing did happen to the original Star Trek, after all, uh, and probably also other shows I'm forgetting about that would disprove this, this theory. Um, but there is just so much rich texture that I think your book adds to our understanding of that development process, not least the fact that um, in the original pilot, you had someone different playing the role of a Daenerys Targaryen. Um, uh, you know, Amelia Clark would go on to become such a key part of the show. Um, can, you, can you kind of just like tell us a little bit about what you learned about her piece uh, of the puzzle? Um, because it's easy to forget that at that time, the Daenerys stuff was so far away from the rest of the show. But there again, you kind of have another snowball rolling down the mountain, something that would start off way over here and become such a centerpiece part of the series to follow. Yeah, yeah. Of all the things that are discussed about the the original pilot, that that, that is the thing that people like to discuss the least. It, it, it is, it is it, you know, it's, it's painful when, when you have to kind of get rid of somebody that by all accounts was 
you know, perfectly lovely. Uh, you know, you know, Tamsin Merchant did a really good job by, you know, from what everybody said. And, uh, you know, from what I gathered, you know, her scenes with uh, Jason Momoa just weren't working. And I got the sense that it was basically a network decision on 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 that front that uh, that the network was like that role needs to be be replaced. And, uh, you know, one person told me that, uh, you know, for the showrunners, uh, you know, it was the hardest call that they ever had to make, yeah. uh, you, know, you know, calling her, her to, to, to let her know that news. So that was difficult. And I think at first, the mindset, from what I understood of, of HBO, was let's find a star for this role instead. And they actually went out to some, you know, known names uh, out there and uh, who, who turned it down. And then they, you know, you know, opened up the floodgates uh, to to unknowns again to try and, you know, find another needle in the haystack. And, you know, boy, did they find it with uh, with with Amelia Clark. When I stepped into the fire, my own people thought I was mad. But when the fire burned out, I was unhurt. The mother of dragons. James, we could discuss the development and early production phase of Game of Thrones uh, so much more in depth. Would really tell um, all of our listeners out there to go check out Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon uh, as soon as possible. Uh, we are going to end this episode now. Uh, next week, we will be talking about um, some of the early seasons of, of Game of Thrones, the kind of shift from uh, when it became this little show that HBO was maybe not paying as much attention to to ultimately becoming the biggest thing uh, on HBO and indeed, arguably, the TV world. Thanks so much to our listeners for listening, whether you were with us on our journey through uh, the, the show itself or you're finding us for the first time. This is the special limited series version of Game of Thrones Weekly we're doing right now. Uh, we definitely do want to hear from you, hear if there's things you'd like us to discuss, hear what you think of uh, Game of Thrones now, one year out. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. He's at James Hibbard. I'm at Darren Franich. Uh, be sure you're subscribed to Game of Thrones Weekly so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, please rate please review. Go to EW.com for more of James's round-the-clock Game of Thrones coverage. Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, Game of Thrones, and the official untold story of the epic series is out now from Penguin Random House. Cannot recommend it enough. Uh, available wherever you get your books. We're going to finish up this week with a clip from the audiobook narrated by Fred Sanders. In the fall of 2008, the decision of whether to order the Game of Thrones pilot was hanging over the network. Lombardo went to his gym, the Equinox in West Hollywood. As it so happened, Weiss went to the same gym. Michael Lombardo. And I see Dan on one of the bicycles. He was reading this dog-eared copy of the first book, and it had underscores and yellow highlights on the pages. He didn't know I saw him, and I thought, we're going to figure this out. These guys breathe this show in a way that doesn't happen all the time. I found that little window into Dan in that quiet moment, that this is what he was doing in his free time. It was such an acknowledgement of everything I suspected about those guys, and it made me determined to figure this thing out. Richard Plepler, former co-president and CEO of HBO. You could see they were breathing this. There's a feeling when great artists are talking about their passion and are immersed in a subject. It's the same feeling you get when The Wire creator David Simon pitches something, or when Armando Iannucci pitched Veep, or Mike Judge pitched Silicon Valley. 
I just had that feeling about them. In November, Benioff and Weiss got the news they had waited three years to hear. HBO had agreed to greenlight a pilot for Game of Thrones. The duo was relieved and elated. But before they could celebrate, they wanted to make sure of one last thing. Gina Ballian. David and Dan told me, We can't have you guys come back to us later and say we can't kill the lead character because suddenly you really like him. So when we got the okay to make the pilot, I remember running to Mike and barging in and going, Just double, double, double checking. We're killing the lead and there's dragons. <laughs> 